Listen up. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Yeah, this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today, the very funny, very entertaining, and very interesting up-and-coming comedian, Kumail Nanjiani. In recent years, Kumail's become a popular performer on the stand-up circuit. He's also written for and acted in several TV series. And he had a one-man show a couple of years ago that ran in Chicago, New York, and L.A. It was autobiographical, entitled Unpronounceable. And it was a big hit with critics and audiences. Not at all bad for a guy who didn't even think of being a comedian until his early 20s and who only arrived in the United States a few years before that. Kumail grew up in Pakistan and came to the U.S. at the age of 18 to go to college. A couple of years later, he took a turn at an open mic and a new career was launched. Kumail and I talked about his youth in Pakistan, his passage to America, and his rapid mastery of U.S.-style comedy. Also about the stereotypes he's had to overcome and the still-limited roles for South Asian actors in the U.S. Both those things, he says, are getting better all the time, thankfully, and guys like me are even learning to pronounce his name right. Yeah, like email, but with a coup instead of the E. I always say that to people, and I used to say, Kumail, like email, but with a coup. And then people would be like, oh, nice to meet you, coup email. And then I'd be like, no, take the E out. <laughs> You know, you don't look anything like you do on Parks and Rec. <laughs> I'm taller. <laughs> I wouldn't even make that joke, except I heard you say something similar. No, Aziz is uh, a good friend of mine, and Aziz he's Ansari. so funny, Aziz Ansari, yeah, and that show is so funny, and he's so good on that show. I mean, he's he's fantastic. He's very funny. I just said, you know, there, there was a point in my career where I was going out for auditions that were clearly written parts written for Aziz that he'd gotten too successful for and I definitely went through a phase where I would go and the part would be like oh it's a cab driver his name is Aziz I'd be like oh I know who you thought you wanted to get <laughs> no, Aziz I'm sorry he's, he's American but his ancestry is Indian you're um, actually Pakistani born and, and raised yes, that's correct but you're saying basically that people have this one slot for a subcontinental I can, comedian I can play Indian on TV <laughs> I could play Sri Lankan. <laughs> but Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, pretty much thrown into the same bucket. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when I go on auditions, I see the same guys. And it's funny. Like, I just moved to L.A., but these guys all know each other, and they've known each other for years because they all go to the same auditions, you know? Is is that changing at all? I mean, there, there are now a fair number of, of comedians from places all over the subcontinent, as people like to call mm -hmm. India and Pakistan, but also from Iran and the Middle East. And are people beginning to make distinctions uh, based on real categories? Uh, not so much I've found in the auditions I go to in the parts that are written. They're all sort of vague, but it, it's sort of, it's good. You know, I, I feel the stereotype is changing. It used to be, it was all like grocery store and cab people. And now, you know, it's more goofy Indian characters. Like if you've seen Community, it's a great show. There's a character on called Abed who's like a very specific guy who just happens to be, I think he's Palestinian. 
who just happens to be Palestinian. And uh, his Palestinianness has very little to do with uh, who he is as an individual, you know. So I think, I hope it's changing. Yeah, his character is uh, is Asperger's. Um, yeah, he has Asperger's. And that's, I guess that's the same the whole world round. What <laughs> <laughs> they said, the universal language, Asperger's in love. Um, when did you first think about becoming a comedian? I never really decided I w- that I would, you know, be a comedian. I was graduating college, and I was a computer science major, and I was a philosophy major, and I was really bad at computer science and philosophy. <laughs> it's hard to get a job in. So I, I sort of went through this crisis. So I was like, what am I going to do with my life? And then I saw a friend of mine do stand-up at an open mic. People said I should try it, so I gave myself six months to write it. I performed, and it was still one of the best shows I've ever had. I remember getting off stage, the first time I've done it, being like, I could do Letterman next week. Just <laughs> cocky. Awful. Uh, and then I gave myself another six months, did it again, moved to Chicago, got a computer science job, just went to open mics, and I kind of never stopped, you know? You must have had something in you that dated back earlier in your life, though. I mean, were you always a funny guy? No, I was actually very, very shy, very, very quiet up until all through high school. I was very quiet, very shy. I remember when I was a little kid, uh, I couldn't go and get stuff at the store because I didn't want to talk to the cashier, you know. I was, like, very, very nervous. Um, And I think it wasn't until I sort of left uh, I grew up in Pakistan until I left Pakistan and sort of went off on my own, left my family, who I love, but I just sort of needed to figure out who I was, and that's when I sort of started being funny, I guess. So you went from uh, Karachi, that's where you grew up? Yes. Biggest city in Pakistan. Oh, yeah. It's like 15 million or 12 million, something like that. What American city, if any, would you compare it to? New York. It's a lot like New York. It's uh, very densely populated. It's loud. It's dirty. It's. I love it. <laughs> Is it it's cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah. You can find almost anything there. Very urban. Like mm. I used to do this joke, because I moved from there to Iowa, and I used to do this joke that it was the first time I'd seen grass and trees and... Corn. <laughs> no weird porn in Pakistan. I said corn. <laughs> oh, I thought you said porn. And... We'll, we'll, we'll get into that too. <laughs> so you went away uh, after you know growing up your entire life in Karachi. You went away to Iowa. Mm-hmm. Why Iowa? Because I didn't know what f-ing Iowa would be like. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, honestly, I wanted to go to a rural part of the world because I grew up in Karachi and it was very, very uh, urban. And I wanted to see if that kind of life was something I wanted to live. And after four years, I was ready to leave. But I, in some ways, it was great that I moved to Iowa because it was very quiet. There weren't that many people from my part of the world there. So I was sort of this interesting, unique creature to them, you know, and... um if I'd gone to New York, I would have been chewed up, but there it was sort of a slow, like the culture shock wasn't as intense, just because mm. there weren't as many people mm. around. You, obviously, I'm, I'm going to say it's obvious because your English is indistinguishable from a native-born American at this point, I would say. Was it that good when you came over? Uh, I probably, I mean, you know, I grew up, I learned English from movies. I mean, you know, also school, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I like the English sort of the American vernacular, like the uh, the intricacies, I learned from like Ghostbusters and Gremlins and Transformers and stuff like that. So I was always very conversational in English and in a very colloquial way. 
Were you just like a string of catchphrases, though? Like, make my day? Or... <laughs> where's the beef? <laughs> where's the... <laughs> hey, Americans, where's the beef? <laughs> uh, no, I just knew, you know, the intricacies of how sort of Americans talk, which is different from, obviously, how British people talk. Right, you know, right. Slang. Was it the same with just American popular culture in general? Did you Have you, you know, taken in so much growing oh, up in yeah. Karachi that... Coming here it was really no big transition. Yeah, for you. no. I mean, I grew up watching, you know, I Knight Rider and then Baywatch, and <laughs> uh, which you know you watch Baywatch for many reasons. Um, so yeah, no, I I knew so much about pop culture coming here. There was a time in my life where I would watch a movie every day when I was a kid, and there were mostly you know Hollywood movies. I'd watch a lot of indie movies too, but every day I would watch a movie. And so when I came here, I know a lot more about pop American pop culture than most of my American. <laughs> you know, I said your English is indistinguishable from a uh, born and bred American. I mean, obviously you have a little bit of an accent, but otherwise, if you were transcribed on paper, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Yeah, it's because of Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Indiana what, Jones. What a language teaching tool. I never thought of it that way. Were there parts of American culture that you... Um, weren't exposed to or couldn't get in, in Pakistan? No, I mean, uh, as as far as movies go, mm -hmm. uh, you got everything. And a lot of those were like those bootleg copies with the guy in the movie theater with the camcorder, you know? Uh, so that's how I saw like the Lethal Weapon movies. I remember specifically at like this really intense part, the guy in front of me starts, in front of the camera started combing his hair. And I was like, so whenever I think of that movie now, I think of a guy sitting in front of me combing his hair <laughs> the sound was bad people were eating so what about the islamic element growing up as far as establishing restrictions culturally on what you were exposed to what you could do or even maybe some of the ideas you had what do you mean i'm sorry you know it's the islamic republic of yeah. pakistan it is officially an islamic country yeah what was the influence of islam on the cultural scene that you grew up with. And oh, I mean, everything. It pervades everything, you know. I mean, Islam is a very... We were told it's not a religion, it's a way of life, you know. So it's like sort of every little thing. I mean, there's no... You know, you have separation of church and state here. There you don't. That concept doesn't exist. Sharia law, which is Quranic law, is the law. So, you know, it was illegal during Ramadan to eat food outside while the sun was out um, and things like that. Alcohol is illegal and stuff. So it really informs everything, it informs everything you do. But it was weird. There were these certain things that people would just sort of close their eyes to and let be okay. Like, you know, pay watch. <laughs> we, we, you know, you need an outlet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, everything. But we weren't allowed to listen to music, uh, Shiite uh, upbringing. But we could watch movies, and movies had music. But that was sort of something that we, you know, filtered out. Your father is a psychiatrist. Yes. Does that mean a more liberal upbringing than maybe some other people in Karachi? Uh, maybe a little. I've seen my parents now. They're more liberal. You know, my mom was always the more religious one, and my dad was slightly more liberal. Uh, and my dad wasn't a psychiatrist then. He was a general practitioner. Hmm. He became a sort of went back to school and became a psychiatrist much later. I think I was actually in high school already when that happened. Hmm. So not super liberal upbringing, but they were always very... I always came first before, you know, if it was choosing between uh, something that religion would do and something that would benefit me, they would sort of choose me. But were they very religious themselves? Yes. Pretty strict? Yes. 
God, I'd love to interview your dad and talk about psychiatry in the yeah. Islamic world. It's interesting, huh? Do they have all the same... Is it Freudian? I mean, is there the same influence of Western psychology? I think the psychiatry he started... Yeah, I, because I don't think there is a concept of psychology uh, outside of that, where I'm from. Well, one, it's a much poorer country in psychology, like therapy, or sort of... You need to be a pretty luxurious country to be able to afford it, you mm -hmm. know, like... If you're, like, figuring out how to get food for your kids and medicine for your wife, you're not worried about the big questions and what am I here for and yuppie ennui, you know. So so I think it's not as – depression is not as much of a problem there as it is here because you can afford to be depressed here or there. You, you <laughs> really can't afford to be depressed. And also I think there is still a stigma against going to a therapist over there. And a lot of – in the smaller villages, a lot of times – psychosis and stuff uh, gets diagnosed as, you know, uh, possession and things like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, no. Definitely. That's what I'm interested in, the overlap between sort of Western models of the mind and Islamic models of morality and the influence of God and and Satan or whatever, you know. Um, well, your dad's not here. I guess I shouldn't push this too far. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I've got this theory I'm, I'm starting to work on. I've heard of or met a number of comedians whose fathers were doctors uh -huh. or psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh -huh. Is there anything to that, you think? Well, I think, one, it gives you a little bit of financial stability so you, that you have the luxury of trying ah. something that's not. <laughs> it, it might also be you're rebelling in some way against yeah. what's a very traditional occupation, you know? Yeah. But for me, you know, it was always like I always had a day job. Like I, it wasn't like they were supporting me before I could make money doing comedy, you know, I always had a day job. I think psychiatry, it's because a lot of comedy is about observation and noticing stuff and noticing how people work. And, and I was always very interested in that even before my dad was a psychiatrist, you know, I... I was always very, very interested in that. I actually, when I went to school, I wanted to be a psychology major, and I ended up not doing it. So I think the comedy thing sort of comes from that, from like trying to understand how people work and what they do and what they like, you know. What was your exposure to the American comedy scene growing up? Uh, I mean, you grew up in, in basically the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. yeah? I didn't watch any stand-up at all. I, th I think, actually, I never watched, you know, Richard Pryor or Bill Cosby or anybody. Gary Shandling, nobody. Uh, my, f I, the first time I saw stand up, I think was Jerry Seinfeld's "I'm Telling You for the Last Time," which was sort of his HBO that he did after his HBO special after Seinfeld went off the air. So it was like ninety eight or ninety nine, like pretty late. So I'd never. So seen you would have already been in your teens, late mm -hmm. teens. Yeah, I'd never really seen any stand up. That was the first one, and I was like, wait, you can just have a guy on a microphone talking and. That's the show. You know, you think of a movie and there's so much work and craft service and special effects. And then you can also just have a guy on a microphone talking. Um, but I've seen a lot of comedies, you know, like I love, like I said, Grossbusters, Gremlins. Uh, Indiana Jones movies are very funny. You know, the uh, uh, vacation movies. And uh, so it's, I, I really liked comedies, um, but I never really seen stand-up. Was there much indigenous Pakistani comedy? There was some, but I never really got into it. Uh, there were a lot of stage shows. Uh, I would say, at that time at least, the stand-up comedy that I'd seen there, which 
was very rare. It wasn't a thing. I think now, actually, there's a guy that I went to high school with who's like the biggest stand-up comedian in Pakistan. So it must have been something in the water at that school. That's really interesting. Yeah, weird. What kind of material can he do and can't he do in Pakistan? Can he do like obscene material, the kind of thing that's stock and trade here? I don't think he could probably go too dirty. Uh-huh. I don't think you could. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, a lot of his stuff obviously is uh, specific to Pakistan, you know, because mm-hmm. that's where he's from and that's where he's performing. Mm. So I don't think he can go too dirty. I haven't really, all the stuff I've seen of his has not been. Or political? I haven't seen him go too political. He actually used to host a show, which was the Daily Show equivalent in Pakistan, and I saw some of it. But it was definitely. I think you can get a little political, but you can't get you can't get too much about. Uh, you can't talk about Islam. You can't make fun of Islam too much. Mm. Politically, you can get away with some of it, depending on who's in power. Well, Pervez Musharraf was on the Daily Show here. Did, was he on yeah. your friend show? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I don't think so. Don't that was an interesting so. moment. What, what were your thoughts? Um, on uh, Pervez Musharraf. Yeah, being I on think the he's Daily such Show. An interesting. Guy, he came at such a hard time. And he has, he's had like, I read a thing, it was like, so far he's had 93 attempts on his life or something crazy like that. He's stuck in this weird place where he has to appease the West, but also the more uh, fundamental conservative elements in Pakistan. He's trying to balance that. And it's really hard. It's really hard. I don't envy his position. Mm. You know, he's not leaving, but I think he's good. It's interesting that uh, a person who has so much power that he's called by some people a dictator uh, in his own country comes on a comedy show in the U.S. And well, gets, that's the power of the And Daily gets poked in the, in the ribs, you know, yeah, by John yeah. Stewart. It's like, yeah, you couldn't do this to me in my house. Exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> I'm in your house, so <laughs> a little of it will do. Um, so thinking about your background, your exposure to comedy being movies, you know, pretty safe Material, mm-hmm. Ghostbusters, yeah, Indiana yeah, Jones. very mainstream. I mean, I was a kid, yeah. And, and and coming here, and in short order, not that long. I mean, a few years. Yeah. You, you get up in an open mic. Yeah. And I mean, days. to to hear your act now, it's like, I I would imagine you totally grew up with stand up, because the material, the delivery, the style. I mean, you seem so at home in it. I just sort of fell in love with it right when I saw that Seinfeld special. And for before I did stand-up, I think three years, I watched every single stand-up I could get my hands on, you know. So I watched like a lot of Dana Gould and Richard Lewis and all these guys. I watched so much of it. And I think what really helped me was that I did feel like an outsider. And all of these guys, in some ways, always felt like outsiders. So I was really related to that. Um and the language of it, it's pretty catchy. Like, you can catch on pretty quick. And what I like about comedy is that the only rule is that you have to be funny. And beyond that, there aren't really, there isn't really anything you have to stick to. So I never really felt like I had to study it to really be good at it. I felt like as long as I could be funny on stage, I was succeeding. You know? mm. Mm. Um, well, I guess there aren't any rules. But certainly, if you look at what is funny and what isn't, you can start to see some... Some patterns. <laughs> yeah, but it's not something that I ever actively sat down and made a list. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, falling on a banana peel is funny. Uh, falling on a spike is not funny, unless it's shaped like a banana. But you know what? And what's funny changes, like the Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first? Like, I don't think, I think about 15 years ago, it stopped being funny. <laughs> it used to be funny. Like, really, you have a baseball team where their names are who and what and where and when. Like, what team is this? Like, you have to presuppose so much 
to like get to the point where you can do that sketch, you know. Uh, so th- it's interesting how what's funny changes. And if you watch, you know, the the, the even standups from the eighties versus standups from today, mm-hmm. like, it's, it's very different. It's evolved. Well, to get um, the kind of laughs that you get from being shocking, you know, mm-hmm. from pushing to the you know pushing into a taboo area. Well, that territory has gone oh, yeah. farther and farther. Yeah. I mean, just talking about ordinary sex is, no matter how graphic, nothing now. No. So you, you have do to do that on prime time. Yeah. <laughs> so it has to be some kind of other kinds of sex. Oh yeah, yeah. You got to bring in the sheep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even then, it's like, oh, just a sheep, <laughs> crocodile. That would be pushing the envelope. <laughs> no, it really does. It is interesting how that's changed. And I, I felt like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a huge resurgence in shock humor, like uh, something about Mary. Those guys were doing stuff, uh, me, myself, and Irene, and American Pie. And it sort of became huge. And that's when I saw a lot of stand-ups who were doing a lot of that kind of shock humor. And that kind of went away. But what it did was, you're right, it sort of pushed the envelope further. So now to be shocking, you have to go beyond that. Mm. How much of your act could you take to back to Pakistan? Uh, I think, well, because mine is pretty, I, it's pretty pop culture heavy. So as long as the people are uh, fluent in like sort of American pop culture, which I think a lot of people there are, I think most of it would translate. It would be interesting to see, actually, because conceptions of humor are so different, can be so different culture to culture. So it would be interesting to see if it would work. You got what I'd call a sense of humor that's, you know, as American as it gets, Growing up watching movies, apparently in Karachi, right? Yeah. So why not all other Pakistanis? Do they not watch those movies? Or No, I definitely watched way more than anybody <laughs> I knew. I mean, you know, people had access to movies and they watched. I mean, you know, we were middle class, so uh, you had access to more stuff. I mean, you know, the disparity of wealth in Pakistan is so bad that the huge percentage of people are not going to be sitting at home watching movies. Mm, mm. Um, so uh, I just was more interested in it than most of the people I knew. You know, like a lot of the people I knew were out playing sports and uh, stuff like that. And I was always watching movies and playing video games, which is not so different from what my life is today. <laughs> and it's exactly the same as a lot of your comedic colleagues here. Yeah. I mean, you have more in common with them in totally. some ways than, yeah. than with people who you live near. I always sort of felt out of place a little bit in Pakistan. I always felt, I mean, it's home. Or it used to be home. But I always, I, I didn't really feel comfortable. And part of it maybe was growing up and figuring out who you are and being more comfortable with who you are. But uh, I didn't really feel comfortable until I was here for a few years. And now I feel more grounded and centered than I ever have. Um, you have like a, a kind of mother load of material based simply in the fact that you did grow up in this very different place and that you came to the U.S., Right. At 18. And you've had to deal with a lot of American ideas of who you are. Right. And that's that's a comedy goldmine, I would imagine. It is. But what you have to be careful of is that there are a lot of people who are from that part of the world who are doing stand-up and you don't want to do the same material, <laughs> you know? Because when I first started, there was so many jokes about 7-Eleven and writing oh, camp and stop oh, at the airport. Man. It was after 9-Eleven, you yeah. know? So right oh, after you came 9/11. after 9-11. I started stand-up after 9-11. Oh, Okay. Uh, right after it. Terrible timing. <laughs> uh, I started. Um, so so the challenge is always to be unique and personal while you're still talking about um, things that other people might be talking about. You know, it's always the challenges. So, so my barometer is always as long as it's something that feels personal to me, that feels truthful to me, 
then nobody else can do it because I'm the only one who's me, you know. Is the expectation that, oh, this guy is going to do, you know, Middle Eastern, to use that term inaccurately, but the way Americans use it, is going to do Middle Eastern material? That's going to There be used it. to be. It's changing. When I first started, and it was part of it was that it was after 9-11, so, and I would not talk about it at all. I would go on stage and not mention it, and I would just do material about other stuff. For the first couple of minutes, I would feel this tension with people like, why isn't he talking about, you know, the horns on his head? Why isn't he talking about that? Uh, and then they would get used to it. But now I feel like because of a lot of other comedians like Aziz and stuff who, the expectation isn't so much anymore that, you know, that I should talk about certain specific things, certain parts of the country there is. But by and large, people just want you to be funny and mm. interesting on stage. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, Americans yeah. are kind of growing up a little bit. I think so. I think so. And I do think that after 9-11, I think there was a huge, people wanted to sort of understand that part of the world. So I think a lot of it comes from, you know, people got a crash course in that part of the country and like uh, in that part of the world in like a couple months, people knew everything there was to know, you know. So I think that's demystified it a little bit. You think they do? Because, I mean, I think one thing you've mentioned in one of your stage routines is... um playing the video game Call of Duty. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Call of Duty and Karachi's in it. And it's all incredibly detailed and perfect, but the language on all the signs is wrong. It's and Arabic. The, yeah, it's Arabic. We speak Urdu, which is crazy. The joke is, you know, you can see individual hair on people's heads, <laughs> but they couldn't Google Pakistan <laughs> plus language, you know. That's crazy to me. It took them three years. Not one guy did it. Isn't that amazing? And, and you know they spent a lot of money. It's a state-of-the-art game. Yeah, uh, and yet they didn't even know what language, or maybe they thought it would just be better to put Arabic there and make it. Uh, well, an the Arabic thing is, country. Arabic and Urdu look very similar. Mm. If, if it's you know, if you see Spanish and English, and you're not a native Spanish or English speaker, it's the same script. Right. Sure, and that's what this is. Right. They just didn't. Uh, I wonder if they got the Arabic check. right. They probably didn't. Uh, <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> There's certain words I know in Arabic, and those when I looked, they did get them right. Like I saw at a grocery store on Karachi, and it said banana in Arabic. So I was like, oh, that's <laughs> they got that right in Arabic. Do, do you uh, know Arabic? From Did you read the Quran in Arabic? Or? I did read the Quran in Arabic. I don't speak it. I know certain words because Urdu uses some of the same words, but it's a very different language, and mm -hmm. I don't really understand it. You read the entire Quran when you mm -hmm. were young? Yeah, and in uh, translation, yeah. So mm. you read Arabic and then you read the translation. Did you memorize it? No, I didn't <laughs> memorize it. It's hard. People do, though. People memorize yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I it's a long book. It is. It's a long book. Um, is there anything in the Quran? I mean, there's probably lots of things, but any one thing or two things that you'd think it'd be nice for, for Americans who've never touched it and have no idea what the contents are to know? Well, it's ultimately, it's a very peaceful religion, and it doesn't really tell you to go out and fight and kill people. It really doesn't. And it's not that different from the Bible. I mean, it's remarkably similar to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remarkably. I mean, you know, the same stories. Like, the names are slightly different, but, you know, we have Noah's Ark and uh, all the all the stories, Joseph's in it, you know. They're, like, very, very similar. Um so, and it is a very peaceful religion. I think it's sort of, mean, some meanings of it have been twisted. So you, you get the sense here that people think of the Quran as this book that just 
is a how-to guide on how to kill white people, you know. Jihad, yeah. But it's so much more than that. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it doesn't really ask people to go and kill. <laughs> um, you did a uh, a one-man show a couple of years ago that ran in Chicago, New York, and L.A. Uh, yes. Called Unpronounceable. Yes. And it dealt a lot with your your background, your biography. Yes, it did. Tell me a little bit about the show and, and what became of it. Uh, it was a show I did. Paul Provenza directed it, um, sort of about me growing up in Pakistan and moving to U.S. And uh, I said some things in it that I don't really think were that inflammatory, but uh, the show sort of ran into some problems. I started getting weird emails about it, and uh, and I decided not to do it. My parents didn't want me to do the show anymore. Um people back home didn't want me to do the show anymore and it was a very personal story but you know my parents were figured heavily into it and it wasn't just my story it was their story as well and ultimately I decided you know if if they don't want me to do it then maybe I don't have the right to do it you know so that was a hard decision for me because it was I'd been doing stand-up a few years and that was the first thing that sort of got me a lot of attention I got a manager from it I moved to New York because of it it got really good reviews it was selling out at the UCB in New York and um it really came at this time where I'd been struggling as a comedian for a while, and then suddenly I had a show that I'd done that really was opening a lot of doors for me. And so deciding to not do it from that perspective as a comedian, as a career choice, was a tough decision for me because you never know you know, if you'll have another thing that people will connect with. Um, so I stopped doing it. It was also that... I'd written this show in some ways. I had all these sort of conflicted feelings about Pakistan and Islam and where I was from and who I was. And that show was a way for me to be able to articulate my feelings on it and to be able to come to terms with everything. And that's what emotionally, that's the purpose that the show served for me. But you write the show and it's very personal to you. And then you perform it. And you perform it again. And then you perform it again. And it was getting to the point where it was sort of becoming like a stage show I was doing. Uh, and for such a personal piece to just be flattened into just a performance, a comedy performance, felt very vulgar to me. And it felt difficult to sort of just collapse this stuff that was very interesting to me into like a stage show, you know. So mm. it had served its purpose to me in that, uh, I it, like I said, it helped me come to terms with a lot of the stuff I'd been dealing with. Um, but after that, it just felt like uh, it just felt like I was using my my story in a way that didn't feel it just didn't feel true. Didn't feel true. Milking it for laughs? Yeah, milking it for laughs. And it was weird to hear these people laughing and stuff that, you know, it's that thing where you can make fun of your parents, but nobody else can make fun of your parents, you know? So if I'm there making fun of my parents, I think it's funny, but then all these people are laughing. And I'm like, wait, no, you don't get to laugh at this. And it was also this weird thing because it was very emotional and I kind of felt naked up there. And it was very hard for me, very uh, draining emotionally for me to do it. Every single performance was very draining. Then when I was done, it felt like this room of people knew me, knew who I was, and people would come up and ask about my parents. And, and I was like, hey, you don't really know me. Uh, so it just felt weird sharing yourself in such a complete way in front of a room of strangers, you know. God, Kamel, I was, 
I've been saying through this interview just what a natural comedian is, but I'm beginning to have my doubts. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are certain things that, and I do like to be vulnerable on stage. I think that is a very, very important thing in comedy. I think it's very funny, vulnerability. That's what's funny, you know, mm-hmm. is a really vulnerable character. If you see somebody like, you know, Richard Pryor, who has a lot of bravado on stage, but he's very vulnerable also. Uh, all the best comedians to me, Woody Allen, obviously, are very vulnerable. And I think vulnerability is very, very important. I just felt weird telling my whole story and exposing my parents and things like that. That felt, it just felt untrue to me. Who could argue with that? I mean, that's like a very sensitive and, and uh, caring you know, position to have. It's, it's just interesting that when you look at American comedy, pretty much talking about your intimates in unflattering ways, yeah. is the norm now. No, totally. I mean, the, if you can't make fun of your mom and dad, right. that really puts a lot of your best material off limits. <laughs> I'll make fun of myself. <laughs> I'd rather make fun of myself. <laughs> but you know, you have somebody like Mark Maron, who's uh, very, very vulnerable, and he's hyper smart, and he's sort of always uh, talking about himself and his own failings and his own demons, and it's very, very funny. It's very, very interesting. Uh and that's what I love about his comedy, you know. Oh, but he does, he includes his dad, too. He does include his dad <laughs> and his mom in it, yes. Yeah, but, you know, my my parents have a good sense of humor and certain things I can make fun of them for, mm-hmm. you know. But then there's certain things that are very, uh, that are just scary, just because of where we're from and because of our religion and everything that are sort of out of bounds, you know. You said that there was disapproval of your show, mm-hmm. your one-man show. And there was, this was all Back people. home. People who had not watched the show, had no idea what the show was, and who uh, had just heard about it or read a review or something and were reacting um, in a very strong way. And, you know, I made the, I made a DVD of the show and I sent it to my parents because they'd heard all this stuff and they were getting very upset. And they saw the show and they realized it's not an angry piece. It's, it's, it's actually a very, very gentle story and it's a very positive story. Um, because I'm not an angry guy. I'm not sort of a vitriolic, angry guy. So it wasn't that kind of show. So on the side, they actually, they were like, we really like the show. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but but is this because you, you, you expressed your own personal doubts about your faith or something like that? Or? Well, is the that... thing is, blasphemy is about blasphemy and sacrilege are punishable by death in Pakistan. Like that's on the law in, in the rule books. And then what is considered blasphemy or sacrilegious? It's so open to interpretation that even they're just bringing up certain things. There are just certain topics you can't even talk about. Just bringing those up is considered blasphemy. So ultimately, I think my show I brought up some things that were, to me, not blasphemous or sacrilegious at all, but maybe more sensitive um, that I think uh, could people could stretch and uh, construe as being anti-Islam, which I, I don't think they were. But And, you know, part of it was that these people hadn't watched the show. Um, but I just... It was all these things that was it was emotionally tiring for me doing the show. It was getting to the point where I felt like I was exploiting my own background and exploiting my own family for it. Plus I was getting these threats. It just I just didn't want to deal with mm. it anymore. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Mm. Um aside from your, your youth and your background in Pakistan, another I, I would imagine ripe area of subject matter would be your treatment by Americans. 
yeah. racism and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it was actually, when I first moved here, it was great. Like, you know, I went to the school called Grinnell in Iowa, which is a hyper-liberal school, a lot of liberal white guilt, and it felt like <laughs> race was something that they didn't even want to acknowledge there, you know? Like, I'd have things where people would be like, oh, you know that guy? He's tall. He wears... Uh, red shoes plays tennis and i'm like is he black They're like yeah he's black I'm like, why didn't you say that we're in iowa that would have narrowed it down so i definitely had this uh i was sort of the, a beneficiary of that where i didn't really feel that different i was made to feel that different after 9-11 i would hear certain things you know walking down the street uh it got rough a few times uh I never felt physically very threatened, but I definitely hear some things. And uh, but like I said, now it's sort of changing. I do do this joke about uh, I was in Orange County like a month ago, and I got out of the car, and this guy yelled at me. He was like, "Hey, Kumar, where is Harold?" And drove away. And uh, you know, part part of the problem was it's pretty close to my name. <laughs> so for a second, I was like, "Oh, he's a comedy fan." No, he's just a racist. Okay. Um, <laughs> But by and large, I now I don't really feel that kind of thing, like I said, because part of that world has been demystified a little bit. Um, and, you know, part of it is that I'm in L.A. and New York, and I'm not in the Midwest. Like, actually, I was flying through, I don't want to name what state it is, but it was one of the states in the Midwest, and as I was walking, I saw all these people looking at me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I used to get this look all the time. But now that I'm in New York and L.A., People are liberal. You don't really get that look. But mm. I was walking. I was, saw this older couple just kind of staring at me. And I was with my wife, who's white. And I was like, oh, look. Look at that look. Do you remember that? We used to get it all the time. <laughs> uh, and you're so, you're so sensitive, you don't want to name the state. You don't want to offend the state. Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but to what extent, though, do you, as a person of color, to use the the very broad and mm -hmm. politically correct term. Do you come to the U.S. and then have to fit into the racial history of the U.S., which is primarily based on black versus white? Yes. Right? And so right. do people try to put you in that spectrum? And I actually, I was in Iowa uh, back when I was in school. I was walking down the street, and this guy pulled up, and sort of this guy looked at me sort of suspiciously and then drove off, went around the block, came back, looked, looked at me again, and yelled at me, he was like, he was like, you, you're a, and then he called me the N-word. And I was like, no, but that's all. He was like, oh, I only know this one. He's not that, but this should hurt him anyway. Like, he was like ignorant at being ignorant. <laughs> he just didn't have the right ethnic he, slur, he just poor didn't guy. Know. I was like, no, it's, it's towel head. <laughs> oh, my God. God, that is incredible. I wanted to show him a chart of like, this is the slur for these people. This is the slur for these people. But yeah, you definitely have that. And it's funny because I actually, uh, after 9-11, I would get, you know, racial slurs thrown at me. And I would get it by white people and by black people. And I always thought it was interesting. Was it was it raghead or towelhead? Was it that oh, kind of thing? Oh, stuff like that. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't even remember. Uh -huh. But... Uh, I was always, it was always interesting to me that I would have a lot of black people saying it to me too, where I was like, you guys are sort of still racially pretty oppressed and you have a history that you're very, very aware of these sort of racial things. And then to, for these guys to not see that the same thing was happening 
to a different group. I thought that was interesting. Although I guess if you're oppressed, the thing you want to do most is f***ing oppress somebody else, you know? Like, oh, thank God it's not us anymore. It's these guys. Did that stuff ever get to you? Or um, It actually, no, not... It, it didn't really get to me. I It was always a surprise when it happened, but it was always... I, like I said, I never really felt physically threatened. And there was, if you remember right after that, there was this... That stuff was happening, but then there was a huge backlash against that and a lot of attempts at humanizing, you know, people from the Middle East. So I think a lot of that campaign was very successful. So uh, I haven't really had a lot, had to deal with a lot of racial stuff. Like, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been very, very different mm-hmm. if it happened. But now mm-hmm. I think people are a lot more sensitive and aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read that you, um, and maybe this is not still true, but I've read that you try to perform almost every night? I try to. When I was in New York, I performed every day. Uh, in L.A., it's a little bit harder. There are fewer shows. Plus, I have a job. Um, I'm writing for a, a show. And before that, I was Which acting show? on a show. It's a Comedy Central pilot. Um, we'll see if it gets picked up or not. Before that, I had a job on a TNT show. It's called Franklin and Bash. It'll debut in June. Um, and those are long hours, you know. Like, your call time is 5 a.m. And then you're there sometimes till, you know, you're there 14 hours and then you have to be up again at five. So I couldn't really perform stand-up as much as I wanted to. Uh, I still try and do it every day if I can, but if I have a job like that, then I kind of have to refocus a little bit. Well, aside from that that kind of job, a gig every day at, yeah. at some points in your career. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you're not coming up with new material every day. I'm trying to. Trying to. Every mm-hmm. day? Every day. Every day. I, had a very, I have a very strict schedule. I write new stuff every day. And then I would go. I would try it at night and then rewrite it the next day, come up with new stuff, rewrite, go try it, rewrite it. So in New York, I could think of an idea and in four days have a fully polished, done, three, four-minute bit just because I was able to perform so much and do it so much. And and in New York, there was a big emphasis on writing a lot. And I think the more you write, the better you get. And if you're not writing, you're cheating yourself out of better material. I mean, you know, who you are as a person changes every day, so your material changes every day. And if I'm doing material that's five years old, then I'm sort of not being true to who I am right now. So I'm a firm believer in just writing all the time and trying out new bits all the time. Do you have anything brand new you want to try out right now? Um, I was actually trying a bit about, I haven't really worked it out yet. I don't know if I'll ever do it. It's not even a bit, but I always thought it was interesting that, uh, scientific breakthroughs, like, I don't understand them anymore because you, you had to be so, you have to have such a specialized understanding of anything. You know, I remember NASA, like a month ago, they made this, they were like, we found a new life form. It changes everything. And I got excited. I was like, maybe aliens, you know? And then they were like, oh, we found uh, a thing that makes DNA from arsenic instead of phosphorus. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that it was <laughs> phosphorus. Because there was a time, like, you know, there was a time we thought the Earth was stationary and the sun was moving around us. And then Copernicus came along and was like, I've been crunching some numbers and holy shit, sit down, hold on to something because the Earth is moving. And that was something that people could understand, you know. And now I don't think we we don't, these breakthroughs, unless it is making contact with aliens... <laughs> Or a cure to AIDS or cancer. I'm not going to understand what the breakthrough is. So I've, that idea was always really interesting to me because uh, I just don't understand them. So I want to try and write a joke about that if I can. Oh. But it's hard to write a joke about something that you don't understand. You got the gist of it, though. 
<laughs> I'll try it out. I want to. I want to see if I. Well, can when you more. get it down, you should get back to me because this show that you're on right now does a lot of science. Oh, really? Yeah, we do a lot of in-depth science. Oh, great! Yeah, awesome. so yeah. so you'll have to get back to me. I'll I'll let you know when the bit is done. <laughs> Hopefully, it works. You know, because I really I remember the Stephen Hawking. This was he had a. Uh, they had some sort of bet with his friends. Do you remember? Yes. Uh, for years about I, the nature of black holes. I interviewed one of the guys yeah. who made the bet with him. And then he, they gave him a subscription to, was it Penthouse or a uh, baseball encyclopedia or something like that? That was what the yeah, bet was? That, um, that's right. Actually, I'm going to correct myself. I interviewed one of the scientists on the other side, but Ooh. not the one who made the bet with. Okay. I interviewed Leonard Susskind, who wrote a book about this uh-huh. argument over black holes. Yeah. And... Um, Actually, Hawking lost the bet. Hawking lost the bet. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And I was very excited. I was like, oh, my God, what is it? And then I read the newspaper, and I was like, I can't figure out <laughs> what the bet was, what's different. I don't understand. It was whether um, information is truly lost or not when it goes into a black hole. Yeah. And it, I don't even... And Hawking said it was. The other guys said it wasn't, and they won. They were, they were right. Well, yeah. it's, not point, it's not 100% yet, 100% but he's conceded. Yet. Exactly. But, you know, I tried to read A Brief History of Time, and uh, and I consider myself a smart guy, and I read all the words. I read them all in the right order. <laughs> but at some point, this stopped making sense to me. And I, when I was done, I was like, wow, I really don't get it. Like, it's some of that stuff gets so involved. It's really interesting, like quantum physics and stuff. But Hey, you'll have to listen to my show. I will, yeah. Confuse you even more, maybe. (laughs) I would love to be more confused. We do try to get into that and try to make it clear. I feel like I get confused, 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 and then clarity. (laughs) I'm in, like, middle of the confused state right now. (laughs) Um, Is there an example of of a joke that you took from an initial idea to honing it down? I mean, is there one you can recall? The starting point and the final product? I'm kind of interested in that process. That's interesting. I actually... Trying to think of specific examples because I definitely have stuff that I think is very interesting to me uh, that I try and write bits about and I can't do it. And then a couple of years later, I'll be working on another bit and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that can go in here. So it's ah. like sometimes you'll have a big idea that'll be like you try and write a six minute bit about it, but you can't really get to it. And then you're working an idea with a movie or something you wrote, you saw. And then the essence of that idea can fit in there. And instead of six minutes, it's like one line, and it's you know it conveys everything you wanted to convey that you couldn't. But I definitely find myself doing that. Like Louis C.K., do you know Louis C.K.? He's hilarious, but you can see he's sort of obsessed with this idea of how sex is this powerful force that keeps you know nature going, and you can't fight against it. And you see that idea and his conception of it evolve. So he used to do a bit about it, I think like ten years ago, where. You know, he doesn't want to masturbate, but it's the species literally trying to survive. You know, it's bigger than him. He can't stop. And then now today, he does a bit about sex. That's, that's the, at the core is that same idea, but it's evolved and sort of changed. So it's, you see that a lot. Like comedians have like certain things that are interesting to them. All, all artsy people do. Like, you know, uh, if you see Christopher Nolan's movies, you see stuff in Inception that's in Memento. You know, his Mm. his second movie, Mm -hmm. like the thing about the wife dying and the guy feeling Mm -hmm. guilty about it, Mm -hmm. that theme is exactly Mm -hmm. the same in both of those. So, yeah, I I feel like if I sat down and looked at all my bits, I would definitely find patterns as they evolve. But you you don't know of any patterns right now? I think the one thing that I really 
uh, is interesting to me is how people assign meaning to things, you know, uh, meaning to people, meaning to objects. Uh, so I think a lot of my material ultimately comes down to that, like, uh, so that it's not just an object. It's interesting to me that you can have, you know, a belt that, like, means something to you, that it doesn't mean to anybody else. How your possessions, in some ways, are very important. They are part of who you are, uh, not just in, like, a shallow way, but in, like, a real, profound way. So I think, ultimately, a lot of my material, I've now that I look at it, sort of comes down to people trying to find meaning in their lives and trying to assign meaning to things and mm-hmm. people. I hear the philosophy major. <laughs> yeah. And I'm reminded, I think Ricky Gervais was a philosophy major also. Was he? Yeah. Huh, he's and, so funny. Yeah, and Louis C.K., I don't know if he was, but he sure has a philosopher's take. He really know? does, and he's very, very introspective, and it's so interesting because he's introspective, but then he's also, he looks at the world around him in like a very... uh in-depth way like you Mm -hmm. know thinking of sex like that oh yeah and that's true you know i i told this story (laughs) of how when i was a kid i found this porno and then i got it stuck in the vcr and i take the vcr apart and i pull it out and feelings of guilt and horribleness and ultimately louis ck would say i couldn't fight it i'm like a 12 year old kid in pakistan (laughs) fighting the very force that's kept me alive you know <laughs> uh, was that uh was that videotape discovered by your parents or did you manage to get it out of the vcr i managed to get it out <laughs> but the vcr was never the same after that did it have all the tension of like defusing a bomb or yeah, something i was sweating into it it was a nightmare i used to tell the this, hurt locker <laughs> yeah it was like hurt locker and i used to tell this story in the one man show and unpronounceable and then i put it back together and there were two parts that didn't fit in so i like went and i hit him <laughs> because uh, I was afraid my dad would see it and know exactly, you know, wait, that's the transmogrifier for the VCR. You've been watching porn, you know? Uh, and then the VCR was never the same. It, it would click. It would make this clicking sound. So my mom was like, I'll take it to get it fixed. I was like, no, I'll take it to get it fixed. So I give it to the guy. This is a completely true story. None of it's made up. He plugs it in and it starts clicking. And he looks at me and he's like, next time you get a tape stuck in there, bring it to me. I won't tell your parents. <laughs> He'd seen it before. Yeah. I thought of all the clicking sounds in all the houses, what Pakistani boys had ripped tapes out of VCRs. It's a powerful force. Yeah, oh and God, that's it's what... It's like a back alley abortionist or something. Yeah. Next time you exactly. get in trouble. I'll do it. Yeah. That's exactly... And that's what... Uh, that was a big part of the show was me sort of realizing that these things that I felt really guilty about, you know, feelings of lust and looking at women was... Not something to be ashamed of, but it's the very force that's, you know, that made that first thing crawl out of the ooze and, you know, make a VCR, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's a very powerful force. It's beautiful. So you said um, you've worked on a pilot. Um, are you going to be in the show if it comes to pass? Yeah, I think so. This show, uh, it's uh, about video games. It's not my show. It's this guy, Jonah Ray, who I host a show with every Wednesday. Meltdown. Plug. A live show in, in LA, in Los yeah. Angeles. Okay, where's uh, it? Where's it uh, staged? It's a place called Meltdown Comics on okay. Sunset. It's okay. a comic book store, and then we sh- do a show in the back, and it's great. It's you know Mark Maron does it, and um, wow, sounds a lot good. of really funny people do it. It's a really fun show. So he had a deal with Comedy Central to do a video game based uh, comedy show, and uh, he sort of brought me on to write for it and be in it so we're just doing that right now video game based yeah video games so what do you what do you mean 
uh, video games are huge. There's a lot of money to be made off of them, and I, they're trying to find a way to make it funny for people who play video games. And for but people, you mean jokes about video games, or do you mean video game, you know, uh, conventions used in the story? You know? No, like do you guys jokes about video games. Okay. No, 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 we're not there with health bars <laughs> <Right>. and <laughs> eating med packs exactly. and fully cooked turkeys that we found <laughs> in a phone booth. <laughs> That's how it used to be. Video games were like, it did become so realistic now, but it literally used to be you punch a phone booth, eat the fully cooked turkey, which like in real life, that would not increase your health bar. In real life, you would probably die if you ate a fully cooked turkey that you found on the street. Uh, yes. Pizzas. You but know. jokes about video games. Yeah, jokes about video games. Yeah. That's... Um, and I'm also doing a series. There's a website called Funny or Die. Yeah. I've and I'm doing a video game. Uh, series with them too that, and that's me I'm the host of that one so hopefully that'll come out in the next couple of months what's the relationship between the website Funny or Die and the HBO show Funny or Die do they lift pieces mm-hmm. the best pieces from the website I think they lift best pieces but then they also produce stuff specifically for the show that's not for the website and it's creatively it's the same mm-hmm. people you know it's the mm-hmm. same producers and probably a lot of the same writers so you could filter up from the the uh, yeah the website to the show yeah. From one level of obscurity to another. <laughs> yeah, to another slightly lower level of obscurity. Very slightly. How about acting in, in film? Is that in the cards, do you think? Uh, yeah, I had a part on a TNT show uh, called Franklin and Bash, which debuts in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just, I was an actor on that show. And that was really fun to do. Um, I had a small part in this movie called Life As We Know It that came out a couple months ago. So yeah, I would love to act. I used to think... You know, I really liked writing, and that was why I got into stand-up. It was the most efficient way of getting my writing out there. I could write in the morning and that night, you know, have it out in front of people. Movie can take like a year. Crazy. Um, But then uh, I started – I had a part in this – actually, I started writing for this Comedy Central show called Michael and Michael Have Issues, which only lasted one season, only six episodes. And I had a small part in that, and I really realized that acting can have a very – uh, creative side to it too you know it's not just people saying lines there's a lot that goes into it and I really kind of fell in love with the process of discovering a character and getting into him and trying to figure out you know his motivation for every scene and where he goes like where he starts in a scene where he ends up and so yeah I uh, would love to do more acting stuff in addition to the writing are there roles that you would turn down because they were too stereotyped? Yeah. Yeah. Have definitely. you? Have you? Yes. yes. So terrorist number three or something yeah. like that? Number three, come on. I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting number twos. I'm, I'm getting off of terrorist number twos at this stage in my career. Threes was a couple of years ago. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. No, totally. I definitely read some parts where it seems like they're sort of out of touch and stereotypical and I don't want to do them. And not just because I feel like there are probably people who were, who could do them better than I could, and I do feel like it's out of touch. Like the stereo, the really stereotypical stuff, I think, is on its way out. I hope, and so these movies would not be good movies anyway if that's the kind of writing they have, you know. Well, Kamal, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you. It's been great. Thanks so much for having me, Kamal Nanjiani. And uh, let's hear a little bit more about an incident from his life that he mentioned earlier. This retelling is from a performance at the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles. I was in Irvine. Already, people are laughing. 
I was in Irvine. I was going to do shows, and I was kind of nervous. I'd never been to Orange County. It's got a reputation, you know. I get out of the car. Literally 10 seconds after I get out of the car, this car pulls up. This guy pokes his head out the window. He yells at me. He's like, hey, Kumar, where's Harold? <laughs> Drives off. Literally 10 f***ing seconds. Like he'd been waiting around the corner for weeks. Like, I can't wait for a brown to come to town. I have a pop culture reference to belittle him with. And I got so angry. I got so angry. And I was thinking, like, why, when somebody's racist to me, why do I get so angry? It's clearly their problem, not mine. And it's because I realized when somebody's racist to you, there are no comebacks. There is nothing you can say to them. It's true. They've won if they're being racist to you. Because what are you going to do, be racist back to them? No, because you're not racist. And most of the people who are racist to me are white. And it's very tricky to try and be racist to white people. Like, Saws, what am I going to do? Like, oh, I'm Kumar? Well, you're the lead in most movies that come out. <laughs> Your move. And that does it for this week's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back in no half a fortnight. In the meantime, check us out on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>